That's where we're going to be today as we continue on in this series talking about the, the values here at Trinity. That is, those values that shape all of the ministry or uh, at least aspirationally, we hope shape all of the ministries at Trinity. We're going to be looking at a pretty large section of Scripture today, and so we're going to pick up in 1 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 12. Follow along with me as I read that to you. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. Verse 16, and if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? And if the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God so composed the body, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers... All suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret, but earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. I think we might all agree that we are living in divided times. Um, Politically, we're, we're seeing greater and greater divides. The idea of somebody working with the other side is of the aisle is, is just unthinkable today. You have to simply reject everybody. We're, we're seeing division over sexuality. We're seeing division over ethnicity. I mean, the, the list could probably go on and on and on of the ways in which the culture we live in is a divided culture. 
interestingly, simultaneously, what's purported in the culture as the highest of all values is tolerance. Am I the only one who sees the great contradiction here? See, how this works out in reality is what we want is not so much tolerance as much as approval. I think what most people mean by tolerance is, is, is that you must approve of me. But when, we, when, when people speak of this idea of tolerance, usually it's, it's directed one direction. Here's, here's the choices I'm making in my life, and you must approve of me. And if you don't approve of me, then I'm going to cut you off. The one thing that's intolerable is not wholehearted approval of whatever somebody does. There's no real tolerance in that. Because I expect you to tolerate what I do, but I don't expect myself to have any tolerance for the things that you do. Effectively, this idea of tolerance is the most intolerant ideology out there. It's a sad reality for our our culture. And the the divides in the culture are just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And there is something far, far more sad than a divided world. And that is a divided church. Now, that's not to say that there are not things worth fighting for in the church. The the gospel, which according to Romans has the power to save all who believe, is worth fighting for. It's worth getting right. The supremacy of scripture is worth getting right. The devastating and damaging and and really death-dealing effects of sin are worth getting right. But I don't think it's usually those things that many churches divide over. We divide over matters of preference, uh, preaching style. I'm not talking about content or doctrine. I'm talking about preaching style. If a preacher's style is one we like, we'll, we'll deal with their, their bad doctrine sometimes. I'm here to tell you it's better to need a Red Bull after church than a spiritual inoculation after Music style, maybe even music volume, carpet color. Here are some real examples I looked up from somebody who's been keeping track for a while. And and admittedly, these are extreme examples of major conflicts in a church. Uh, A church had a major conflict uh, over whether or not black t-shirts should be allowed to be worn in church because black was the devil's color. Uh, a church had a major division because the, uh, the books were off by 10 cents. A church had a major division over the acceptable length of a pastor's beard. TJ, you're in trouble, man. This one, I I just can't get over. Uh, A church had a major conflict over the use of the term potluck 
instead of pot blessing. <laughs> These may seem silly, and really, they are silly. I feel badly for those churches. But they do evidence our proneness to turn our preferences into matters of truth. To turn our preferences into matters of right and wrong. And that's what was going on at the church in Corinth as we come to chapter 12. Except what they were using to promote themselves and to divide over was spiritual gifts. They were, they were claiming that some gifts, particularly the gift of tongues in the context of 1 Corinthians 12, was by far the most important gift. And so they were, they, they were using these gifts of the Spirit for sinful self-promotion. And while that's not the point of this sermon, I do think there is a warning here. From Moses striking the rock to the Corinthians and their use of tongues, spiritual gifts can be abused. The simple exercise of, of a spiritual gift does not inherently come with immediate authority or, or rightness. The, the gifts are only right in so much as they're used for the purposes for which they were given, but let's return here to our context. They were they were vying to be seen as important. They wanted the priority position in the church, and the the church in Corinth it's plagued with many sins. Honestly, um, I've preached through the book of First Corinthians before, and it, it and I think the church in Corinth, or at least the culture, not the church, the culture in Corinth was remarkably similar to the American culture today. And, and God was able to navigate this church through that, that time, and he'll, he'll do the same for us. But, but it's incredible. And so they're plagued by many sins. There's a, adultery is part of what we see in here. There, there's other sexual issues that are in here. I think we see in chapter 11 some transgender issues. Come to the sexuality class if you want to hear about that. Uh, there was abuse of communion. There was idolatry. There was divorce. There was lawsuits. But no issue. No, it was the church that nobody wanted to pastor. Paul tells the church, I've asked these people to come and to try and lead you, and they've all said no. Nobody wanted to go there. But no issue. No issue gets addressed with a, a greater amount of ink in Corinth than the problem of division. And to be clear, Paul is, is not, in this, this book, calling for, for unity or peace at any price. In fact, I would say there are two reasons given in Scripture for which churches ought to divide. Number one is unrepentant sin. Matthew 18 gives us instructions as to how to divide an unrepentant person from the body of the church. And then in Galatians and 2 Corinthians and Jude and 2 John and 3 John, as well as other places, those are just the big obvious examples, there, there is a call at times in the church to divide over false doctrine. Now, now, those were, for the most part, major issues, not minor issues. We're not called to divide over every little thing. But in all of those examples... The people that, that they were called to divide from by Paul and by John were people who were messing with the gospel, who were getting gospel truth wrong. And so Paul spends most of his time 
at least on any single issue in the book of 1 Corinthians, dealing with the issue of unity in the church. And as we continue our series this morning on values, we come to this very issue. As a church, we hope to, we want to value what creates for unity, not division. We, we want to, to do what makes for deference, not demands. We, we want to be a people who are more interested in serving rather than being served. So since we have so much text, let's get to it. Let's look at five realities of the unified church. Five realities of the unified church. Number one on your outline there is simply, no shocker that Paul starts here, the issue of unity. Look with me at verses 12 and 13. For just as the body, and this is not a a spiritualized reference to start, he's talking about your body or mine or anybody's. Just as anybody's body is one and has many members. It's it's one body but has many parts and all the members uh, of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. He's saying in the church, the church is like a body. It's made of many parts. Uh, those parts have differing functions, and we're going to continue to see that as, as this unfolds. But, but all of these parts make up one body. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. There are many metaphors in Scripture that are used for the people of God, both in the Old Testament as a reference to Israel and in the New Testament as a reference to the church. And there's a lot of overlap in some of those. But one metaphor that never occurs anywhere in the Old Testament that is used exclusively for the church is that of a body. The point is that there is, or or at least there ought to be, connectedness. In verse 13, he says, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. This preposition into is the most common preposition used after the word baptized. And, and we don't really understand baptism very well because we weren't, uh, it wasn't, it's not part of our culture outside of the church. But this idea of, of being immersed in water for the purpose of being placed into something was not foreign to these people. If you were going to be brought into ministry in Israel, it was going to come with a bath. If you were going to become a citizen of the nation of Israel, it was going to come with a bath. You were going to get dunked in this little pool called a mikvah, and and we could talk about the historicity of that, but effectively, what we see in the New Testament, and if if this intrigues you, we've got a baptism class coming up that you would be more than welcome to join us in, even if you've been baptized, and if you just want to learn more. But the idea of baptism in the New Testament always carries the idea of being placed into something. Spirit baptism in the New Testament is being placed into the family of God. Spiritually, the, the, the big C church, the, 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 the all believers for all time church. Water baptism is a placement into the local assembly. And so when, when we were baptized in water, we were connected to a group of believers. And when we were, at the moment we believed and had faith, when we were baptized by the Spirit, we were placed into the family of God. A a synonymous word in the New Testament for spirit baptism is adoption. It's that placement into God's family. 
And so when we were baptized, when we were placed into the body of Christ, we of necessity became connected to one another. Paul's main point here in these two verses is that no one part comprises a body. A body is essentially, even though it's one body, a a connection of many parts. The sum of the parts that make up your body make up your body, and so it is with the church. The two previously mentioned reasons for for division in the church are are because they, they indicate that one is not a believer. If somebody has come into the church, no matter how much they claim to be a Christian, but they preach a gospel other, as Paul says in Galatians, that has been preached to us, then then that's no gospel at all, and that person is not saved. You you cannot preach a works-based gospel. You cannot preach a a gospel uh, other than, and it has come in many forms, and we don't have to, to, to deal with all of those today, but to preach another gospel is to reveal that one is not saved. And to, to live with unrepentant sin, uh, habitual unrepentant sin in one's life, where, where we're sinning and we go, I know I'm sinning and I just don't care, is also, according to Matthew 18, evidence that one's profession of faith is probably not genuine. And so those places for which division is called for in the church, they come not because we go, oh, I don't like you or I don't agree with you on this matter of lesser importance, but because the only acceptable discrimination in the church is believer and non-believer. Those who are inside the church, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, and those who are outside the church. But for those inside the church, there is to be gospel commonality. At great length, Paul explains this in Ephesians 2 and 3, where he talks about how Christ, through his life and death and resurrection, has torn down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. This would have been, at least in the Jewish thinker's mind, probably the greatest division that could possibly have existed. And and Paul says that Christ has reconciled us into one new man. And so Christ lives our sinless life. He, as we saw uh, last Sunday, dies as our substitute. He takes our place in death. He bears our punishment. And when we believe and repent and we are joined with Christ, when we are found to be in Christ, that's Paul's favorite term in Ephesians, we, we find that we are in Christ not alone, but with others. And there's this automatic and necessary connection to believers. I think the best way to describe this, I heard said one time that that imagine, if you would, your, your closest friend who votes the same way you do, thinks the same way you do, watches the same TV programs you do, recreates the same way you do, but is not a believer. You have less in common with that person than a believer on the other side of the world who speaks a different language than you. To have Christ in common is to have everything in common. Everything, of course, that that really matters. Now, again, I'm not saying there's not uh, times to divide. This is not peace at any price. 
But do we understand that those believers in Christ who vote differently than we do have everything in common with us? Who sing differently than we do have everything in common with us? Who baptize babies wrongly have everything in common with us. The the gospel has that kind of power to unify. And and we are to, to understand our commonality, even if we have nothing else in common of the gospel, is sufficient to unify us. We are to be a unified body. But number two, unity does not mean uniformity. So number two is diversity diversity. Unity does not mean uniformity. Look with me at verses 14 through 20. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If you lost your foot somehow, and a surgeon said he could put it back on, and you woke up with a hand in its place, that would be bad. If you lost an ear, and a surgeon said he could fix it, and you woke up with an eye in the side of your head, that would be bad. There is of necessity a diversity to the parts of the body. We need feet and hands and, and eyes and ears. We, we need all of these diverse parts with different functions. Inside of your body, there are many parts and pretty much none of them function the same. And so it should be with Christians. The Corinthians were fighting over how their gift was the most important and how if you wanted to be important, your gifts would be like my gifts. And I think oftentimes what we tend to do is we tend to take our talents, our preferences, our strengths, and then we demand others be like them. Robert Murray McShane, uh, Scottish pastor, said, It is not great talents God blesses so much as great likeness to Jesus. The greatness of your spiritual gifts is not what makes you significant in the body of Christ. If you want to be significant in the body of Christ, we must be like Jesus. So it begs the question, do you want people to be like Jesus or like you? Do you value them for your likeness to you or your likeness to Christ? Do you believe that the more they're like you, the more they're like Jesus? Expositor's Bible Commentary says this, and it's brilliant. It says, this is not unity in diversity, nor is this diversity in unity. But rather, it is a unity that dominates diversity and makes diversity genuinely meaningful and constructive. Not unity and diversity, not diversity and unity, but unity that dominates 
diversity and makes diversity genuinely meaningful and constructive? Do we see that the unity of the gospel that we talked about last night dominates our differences, our strengths, our weaknesses, our preferences? And then, knowing that that unity dominates in that way, do we see the value of diversity in the church? Thirdly, we come to the principle of necessity. Necessity. Not just unity, not just diversity, but necessity. Verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem weaker are indispensable. He goes on from there. You can continue to read, and there's some interesting stuff in here. I'll just touch on those a little bit. But you cannot have unity nor diversity without having many people, without having many members. I'm not, I'm not saying necessarily... Uh, I'm not speaking to church size. I'm simply stating that that if we think we've got the the market on the best gifts and we end up operating alone, there's no unity in solidarity. There's, There's no diversity in solidarity. We must look at those who aren't like us as necessary. Each member of the church is necessary, not because they do the same things we do, but because they do something different. And then Paul goes on at length here to talk about parts with greater honor and lesser honor and and, and more private and less private. I don't think there's anything weird going on here in terms of of references to to sex or sexuality or anything like that. I'm simply, I, I think partly what he's getting at is that it tends to be the internal organs, the unseen ones, that we consider to be the most important. I think Paul's point is to the Corinthians is, is those who had more visible gifts in the church, they were using their gifts for self-promotion to say that they're the most important. And Paul's saying, look, that's not the right idea here. The more visible your, uh, your gifting in the church, probably the less important you are. You know what that means? That means that I'm the least important person in the church. I mean that. It is my gifting that is probably the most visible in the church. And you know why I'm here? Because Brad's not. And you know why somebody else will be here in the future? Because I won't be. But according to the context of spiritual gifts in chapter 12, no matter who's in the pulpit, guess who is among the people of God? It's the Spirit of God. That's what makes somebody's gifting necessary and essential and important. It's not the prominence of the gift. I'm I'm replaceable, pretty easily replaceable. And that's that's a good thing. And you know what's going to happen? You know what's going to happen when, I mean, I hope I'm here for a long time. But you know what's going to happen in, let's say, 20 years when I retire and we hire somebody else? 
we're going to hire somebody who's really, really, really different than me. You know why? Because none of us are omni-gifted. I'm certainly not. I got, a, I got a couple fish and some loaves that I bring to the equation. And God may do great things with that. But the reason that, that the, the next guy is going to be so different than me, and maybe I'm different than Brad, and Brad was probably different than the, the guys who came before him, is, is because we only bring an incredibly limited amount of gifting to the equation. You see where it becomes necessary? I can't be all things. You can't be all things to all people. Only Jesus can do that. And so we have to see the gifting that we have that's different from the gifting that somebody else has, not as, com- as competing giftings, but as complementary giftings. We need to value those who are gifted differently than, than we do so that we're a, a body made up of diverse parts. Diverse parts who, look at verses 25 and 26, care for one another. When we understand the the necessity and the importance of every person in the church, if you serve in a way that's not very visible, not often recognizable, you, you hold an honorable position in the body of Christ. And when we understand the church to be like that, what results is verse 25 and 26, that there may be no division in the body. When we value each other, there's no room for division. What happens when we we see each other as necessary for our differences is that the members have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one is honored, all all rejoice together. We are to be a unified body. We are to be a diverse body. We are to be a body that views each other as necessary. And fourthly, we are to be a body that is marked by individuality. Individuality. Look at verses 27 to the first of 31. Now, you are the body of Christ collectively, but guess what's not lost? And individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. I don't think Paul is talking about the priority of the verse of these gifts as he writes this verse. I don't think he's saying that the primary gift is that of apostleship, and then the next most important gift is prophets, because, and then the third is teachers, because that would completely deny, it would be completely against what he's arguing for here. I think like Ephesians 4, where where Paul says that there was first apostles, then prophets. So you had the apostles first who began to write the scripture. Then you had prophets like James and Jude and, and others who were not apostles, but nonetheless prophets who wrote the words of God. Then you had the evangelists, those who went out and shared the gospel and, and built churches, and then pastor teachers. That is, who, who pastor those bodies that now exist in those places that the evangelists went. I think he's not talking about priority. I, th- I think he's talking about order. 
And I think similarly, he says here, first came the apostles, second the prophets, then the teachers, then miracle workers. I don't think we can, we can uh, divide this into the, the most important versus the least important. He's simply just giving us an order of the way things went. And while we won't la- labor this point, what I think Paul is saying here is that we must value each individual member. We must look with this unity and diversity and necessity on every single member of the church. And then Paul here obviously returns to this idea of giftings. We should look at the giftings of others and value them. And there's, this isn't an exhaustive list. There's a few list of, lists of spiritual gifts in the New Testament. None of them are complete. None of them are even the same. I don't even know that we could formulate a, a complete uh, an exclusive list of gifts from those lists in the, script, in the scriptures. I, I think many of them are just exemplary. God wants to use who he has created you to be in his church for his glory and for the good of others. But no one has all the gifts. And so every member individually must be making use of their gifts and valuing those other gifts in order to be a complete body. And so we must understand that there is still to be individuality in our unity and diversity. But lastly, I think what Paul presents us with is the priority. The priority. Look with me again at verse 31. He says, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. Now, this is a little bit of a tricky translation here in verse 31. Because when he says earnestly desire, the verb there, uh, there's a form of this verb that's identical in two different forms. Let me see if I can explain that. Um, He could be using a present active indicative here or a present active imperative. They're exactly the same letters, pronunciations, words in the Greek. Now, if it's the indicative, that's just a statement of fact. You are desiring the higher gifts. If it's an imperative, he's making a command. Earnestly desire the higher gifts. Now, I don't see how the second can fit the context. I think what he's just got done telling us is that there are no higher gifts and to knock off uh, pretending like our gifts are the higher gifts. I think what he's saying is the first, you are desiring the higher gifts. You're desiring not the gifts you have, but the gifts you want or the gifts that somebody tells you you should have. I mean, effectively, here we are 2,000 years after the penning of this epistle and people are still out there saying, hey, if you're really a believer, you will have spoken in tongues. And, and Paul could not be any more contradictory to that right here. He just said, do all speak in tongues? No. I don't, I don't think he is telling us to earnestly desire the higher gifts. I think he's saying you are desiring the higher gifts or what you perceive to be the higher gifts. And the second part of verse 31, I will show you a still more excellent way. 
What he's doing is he's saying, stop pursuing spiritual gifts. He's already told us or, or, or is going to tell us within the context of chapter 14 as well that no, none of the gifts are given for anyone's personal benefit. They're all given for the edification of others. There's no spiritual gift that exists. That, that, let me rephrase this. There's no spiritual gift that you have that exists for you. Whatever spiritual gift you have exists for everybody else. And so I don't think he's telling us to pursue gifts. You've been given gifts. The Spirit apportions those as he desires. Now he's going to tell us the more excellent way, what we are actually to pursue. What is every unified, diverse, essential member of the church supposed to pursue? And that is love. Because if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If you have the highest of these gifts that you're pursuing, but you don't use them in love, you're just annoying. Right? If, if you want to see this lived out, um, well, let's just take the last 10 minutes of our service and put Bradley in the drum cage. <laughs> or me. Right? Like, just, just pounding on cymbals and drums without any knowledge of how to play the drums, it gets annoying really fast. And Paul's saying, look, at best, if you have the highest gift, gifts or even what you're supposing to be the highest gifts, he's not saying that there's tongues of angels here and we can talk about the construction of this sentence and why I think that some other time. But he's simply saying, e even if you could speak the language of angels and all of the tongues of men, but you have not love, at best you're annoying. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. We all know, maybe we've all been, certainly I have, the person who thinks they know everything, but uses it for their own benefit, for their own self-promotion. Again, annoying if I give away all I have and I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. The priority of the church, what we pursue, what we seek is to be love. And, and as I've said over and over again, the 15 descriptions that he's about to give us of love in the verses that follow in 1 Corinthians 13 is that they're all verbs. 1 Corinthians 13 wasn't put in here as a wedding passage. It was put in here as the remedy for everything that's gone wrong in the church in Corinth. Disunity is a lack of love. Adultery is a lack of love. Other forms of sexual immorality is a lack of love. Lawsuits among believers, it's a lack of love. 
fighting over spiritual gifts and who's most important or worship styles or music styles or carpet colors or beard lights or potlucks versus pop blessings. It's, it's all a lack of love. It's all sinful self-promotion. The priority in the church is always to be actively loving one another. Your gifts and my gifts, they're not nearly as important as our love for one another. Do you, do you love the body of Christ? And by this I don't mean in terms of what you feel about the church. I mean about how you live and serve and, and love and use those gifts that God has given you for the good of others. I'm going to leave us with John chapter 13, verse 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Father, you have gifted each and every one of us. And you have gifted each and every one of us differently. You have, as we're told in 1 Corinthians, apportioned each of those gifts as you desire so that we as a church might be complete, lacking in nothing. Lord, would you, would you help us to not rob your church and one another of the goodness of the fellowship by, by not using our gifts in love? But far more than, than our giftedness, would you give us a great love for Christ and a great love for one another? Would you, would you help our love for one another in, in action, in, in the way we care for one another? in the way we prioritize one another, in the way we show deference to one another and lay down our preferences for one another, would you help it to be such a tangible and palpable love that the world can't help but to take notice and to want to be a part of a community that is able by the power of Christ and, and because of his death and resurrection, able to love one another so well. Would you let that be for our good, as, as we see, it, it, it's clearly good for us. We gain nothing if, if we give everything but, but don't have love. Would you help us to have this perspective of love that sees it as good for us and good for others and good for your glory and good for our witness and our testimony in the world? Would you help us to be a church that is marked by this kind of unity that dominates everything we do? And we ask it in Jesus' name.